0: Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 64, Like Groovy Man, to hear about fluorescent pigments, their development, and how they work. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash thehistoryofchemistry. As we make our way squarely into the 1960s, it occurred to me to talk about fluorescent paints and pigments because this is when they first became quite popular. And we need quantum mechanics to explain how fluorescence works. But, as with many things chemical, we travel back to the 1930s for our story. Back in 1933, there were a couple with two sons, Robert and Joseph Switzer, who had moved recently from Montana to Berkeley, California. The father owned a pharmacy. Joseph was an amateur magician and a chemistry undergraduate student. Robert was a pre-medical college student and got a summer job at the Heinz Company, yes, of ketchup fame, quality control laboratory where he often unloaded freight cars to bring samples to the laboratory. While unloading a railroad car, Robert had an accident, was found unconscious next to the train tracks, and was taken to a hospital. He had brain injury, double vision and memory loss. Robert recovered at home and part of the treatment for his eyesight was staying away from bright lights. So, in the dark, Robert and Joseph became interested in fluorescent minerals and compounds. As the sons of a pharmacist who had a variety of unusual and interesting compounds, They took a primitive ultraviolet lamp into their father's storeroom to see the glowing pharmaceutical products. How and why they glow we will get into a little later in the episode. Recall in the spectroscopy episode that ultraviolet light has shorter wavelengths and higher energies than visible light, but the molecules in our eyes are not tuned to detect it. Lamps that are tailored to emit ultraviolet rays are often called black lights. As I mentioned, Joseph was an amateur magician, so they decided to incorporate such weird glowing under a black light into their magic routine. Their first trial was to use murine eyewash dissolved in alcohol plus white shellac, and they got a fluorescent yellow color under their black light. They painted their costumes and magical props. Joseph won a prize in 1934 for a fluorescent costume at a convention of magicians in Oakland. Then they experimented with their concoction, realizing a marketable product, and began a business selling these paints in 1934 under the company name Floor S. Art Company. Their process was done in the home laundry room using their mother's Mixmaster kitchen mixer. And, at this time, Joseph realized the marketing potential of fluorescent paint. His brother, Robert, wrote in 1934 that Joseph, quote, conceived the idea of projecting ultraviolet light upon all displayable articles which fluoresce, or are treated with fluorescent materials, to produce a beautiful and noble method of displaying merchandise, They charged 10 American dollars per American pint, which is just under half a liter. In today's money, that's well over 200 American dollars, which was quite a lot of money for paint in the Great Depression. People erroneously thought that a high price plus a glowing paint meant that the paint contained the element radium, which was still popular if the radium fad was declining already by the 1930s. Early on, their customers were interested in safety signs, movie posters, and displays. The burgeoning movie industry specifically was wowed by fluorescent posters inside movie theaters. Of course, these unearthly colors were only visible under black light. By the early 1940s, they invented a so-called daylight fluorescent pigment that seemed to glow with no ultraviolet even in broad daylight. The U.S. military included these bright, intense pigments into fabrics and for pilots landing on aircraft carriers. One of the practical products they developed was penetrating pigments to detect flaws in metal visible under blacklight illumination. In 1946, after World War II, the brothers founded a new company, Independent Switzer Brothers, Working more on the daylight bright pigments. The firm was able to create a fluorescent yarn in 1950. They continued experimenting and gradually created a rainbow of bright colors, which they registered under the trademark as Dayglow in 1952. Their big success came in 1957 when they patented a better process to make such pigments, adding in polymers and milling the mixture down to a good size of particles. They could be used as paint, as printing inks for posters, and were stable enough not to fade too rapidly in outdoor venues. One of their most famous advertising and graphic successes was in 1959. This was the first commercial packaging using their new Dayglow orange color, the box of Tide laundry detergent used to this day. This was also the time that the first artists began to use fluorescent paints in their works, among whom were Serge Vanderkam, a Danish-Belgian artist, Felix de Buc and Bert Deleu, Belgian painters. By the swinging 60s, these dayglow paints became wildly popular in graphic design and the arts. Andy Warhol, Frank Stella, Richard Bowman, and Herbert Ach. Were pioneers of fluorescent paints. In the later 1960s and 1970s, the fluorescent pigments also were incorporated into disco decor with black lighting for added visual pizzazz. And finally, with the trademark Dayglow coming into common usage in the late 1960s, the independent Switzer Brothers company changed its name to Dayglow Color Corporation in 1969. In 2012, the American Chemical Society named Dayglo Pigments as a National Historic Chemical Landmark. So, how does fluorescence work? Fluorescence, though not yet called that in the Renaissance, was first noted by Nicolás Monardes and Bernardino de Sahagún in the 1560s, describing an odd opalescent appearance to the liquid extract of lignum nephriticum used as an Aztec medicine. Then, several hundred years later, in 1819, Edward Clarke, an English professor of mineralogy, found a similar effect in fluorite crystals. A few years later, French mineralogist René Juste-Aouy also reported a double color of fluorite. Reflected light was purple, but transmitted light was green. And the reports came faster. In 1833, the Scottish physicist David Brewster reported that green extract of leaves in alcohol, mostly chlorophyll, was red-colored when viewed from the side. Englishman John Herschel wrote of a similar effect when he dissolved quinine sulfate in acid. Quote, Though perfectly transparent and colorless when held between the eye and the light, it yet exhibits in certain aspects and under certain incidences of the light an extremely vivid and beautiful celestial blue color. Unquote. In fact, you can see this light blue fluorescence yourself. If you have a small black light, either a fluorescent lamp often used by stamp collectors to see special postal markings, or a battery-powered LED black light, just get a bottle of tonic water, take your black light, and shine the black light on the bottle in a dark room. You will see a vivid and beautiful celestial blue color from quinine in the tonic water. The term fluorescence wasn't invented until 1852 when physicist George Stokes began unraveling the cause. Black lights were not invented yet, so the only source of ultraviolet rays was sunlight. He placed samples of quinine and fluorite in different parts of a solar spectrum from a prism. No odd optical properties appeared in visible light, but when he moved the samples to the invisible area of ultraviolet, suddenly the samples glowed. Thus he discovered what is now called Stokes' Law, that the glow was always of a longer wavelength than the ultraviolet, or invisible light, on the sample. He termed the phenomenon fluorescence, from the mineral fluorspar, plus an analogy to opalescence and opal. Toward the end of the 19th century, some organic compounds used as dyes and pigments were shown to have this fluorescent property, including eosin, naphthalene red, and fluorescein. Fluorescence came to be used in chemistry as an analytical means at this time. If you know the fluorescence spectrum of a substance, you can detect it in your sample. You can even tell the concentration of the substance based on how intense the fluorescence is. But what exactly was going on physically was a problem for scientists. And so, we get to quantum mechanics, not invented till the late 1920s. Remember that all materials are composed of positive nuclei plus negative electrons, and those electrons are hovering and zooming around the nuclei in energy levels called orbitals. We don't know exactly where the electrons are near the nuclei because of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. All we can say is that the electrons are in fairly well-defined volumes near the nuclei and that these are the atomic orbitals in free atoms, the molecular orbitals in molecules, and electron bands in metals. Let's take a molecule with some electrons in their lowest orbitals with lowest energy levels. We zap or shine some ultraviolet light on the molecule. From quantum theory, we know that if the ultraviolet photon hitting the electron is of the right energy or wavelength, the electron absorbs that photon and it instantaneously jumps up to another, higher orbital. This is what's called a quantum jump or quantum leap. We also remember that the orbitals have suborbitals depending on the atom and its neighbors, and these suborbitals have a collection of varying but nearby energies. So, the electron has been pushed up to a higher orbital, and perhaps through transferring heat or vibrations, it drops down through the collection of suborbitals a bit till it finds a relatively stable higher orbital. Then the electron quickly emits another photon and falls back down to its lowest energy orbital of all. This emission of another photon, which has a longer wavelength and lower energy than the incoming ultraviolet light, is the fluorescence we see from quinine or fluorite or even day glow paints. As for day glow paints, they fluoresce in daylight because they reflect visible light, as other pigments in paints do but they also accept natural ultraviolet from the sun or other lamps simultaneously and so fluoresce while reflecting normally. They are actively converting ultraviolet in sunlight into visible light. Thus, they appear brighter than regular paints, which do not fluoresce. Fluorescence is known in the biological world. There are fluorescent amphibians, coral, fish... Squid, shrimp, butterflies, parrots, spiders, and plants. Exactly why and how living creatures developed the ability to fluoresce is not always obvious to biologists. One interesting field that uses fluorescence is forensics. You can dust areas with certain fluorescent compounds like ninhydrin and detect fingerprints. You can detect blood and other body fluids via fluorescence. Another area of interest is in detergents. Many laundry detergents add fluorescent materials to make white laundry seem brighter white, to reduce the dingy gray color well-washed laundry often gets. These fluorescent materials are called optical brighteners, so you have your laundry appear whiter than white. What are the actual compounds in dayglow or fluorescent paints that do this? Most of the chemical compounds used in fluorescent paints are trade secrets. Yet, we can make guesses about what molecular structures they have based on long-time known fluorescent compounds. Most are moderately complicated organic compounds with multiple benzene rings often linked with oxygen atoms and they also have nitrogen-containing groups dangling off. Why would this be important? Let's go back to the episode where I talked about conjugated organic compounds, those with alternating single and double bonds, a prime example of which is vitamin A. Recall that such conjugated compounds have transitions between lower and higher energy molecular orbitals where the electrons can jump up when absorbing a photon and fall down while emitting a photon. If you add in oxygen atoms and nitrogen atoms with their paired-up electron lobes, you have even more places for the molecular orbitals to blend into. What we seek is some set of orbitals with transitions mediated by ultraviolet light and another mediated by visible light. And these kinds of compounds fill the bill nicely. There is a significant problem with fluorescent pigments. The Switzers knew this and partially, but not completely, solved the problem. The pigments are fugitive. They fade and lose fluorescence with time. The high-energy ultraviolet light degrades the pigments through photochemical reactions. As this problem became better known, many artists began to eliminate fluorescent paints from their ateliers. Likewise, work is underway to understand how to conserve existing artworks. One report I read states that visible fading appears as soon as five years after creation of the fluorescent art. I want to distinguish fluorescence from its photophysical brother, phosphorescence. Again, to explain phosphorescence, we turn to quantum mechanics. The term itself dates from 1766, and the phenomenon is different from fluorescence, because fluorescence only occurs when a substance is illuminated with black or ultraviolet light. Phosphorescence is a general glow-in-the-dark without ultraviolet light to get things going. Suppose we take a substance with its electrons in the lowest energy level. We shine ultraviolet light onto it, the electrons absorb the light, and jump up to the higher energy level. We remember that these levels are really collections of sublevels of similar energy. But electrons also have this property of something like spinning, even though they appear to be point-sized particles, and how can a perfectly small point actually spin. However that works, scientists call that property of electrons spin and treat it quantum mechanically. Without going into the gruesome details, and the details can get gruesome mathematically, we now have an electron with some spin value in a higher energy state. For some reason it changes its spin and falls into a different set of orbitals from the regular orbitals. Most compounds have electrons all nicely paired in opposite spins. Here, though, we have two electrons not paired up. Now, the electron is trapped in that other spin state. It cannot easily fall down to the lowest energy level without changing its spin back, and takes a long time to flip its spin. Instead of nanoseconds billionths of a second, as in fluorescence, it could take seconds minutes or even hours for the electron to figure out how to fall down to the lowest level and emit a photon. Hence, the -the glow-in-the-dark property of phosphorescent materials. The materials absorb photons during daylight, moving their electrons up to higher orbitals. In the dark, the electrons one by one shift back down with difficulty, and the material emits light. A common phosphorescent material is the compound zinc sulfide, which phosphoresces greenish. And a long-lived phosphor, strontium aluminate, developed in 1993, which glows ten times longer than zinc sulfide. Calcium sulfide glows red, and some metal earth silicates glow blue. The element phosphorus, funnily enough, which glows in its white form, is not phosphorescent, even though the phenomenon has a name related to phosphorus. There are other cases where materials can glow in the dark without any ultraviolet lamps. For example, there is triboluminescence, where rubbing materials together causes glow, and that's a different phenomenon not in this episode. One famous example is chewing wintergreen candy and seeing the sparks in the dark. There is also chemiluminescence, which you might see in glow sticks, which you bend and break a capsule mixing reagents. The glow of white phosphorus in the dark is a form of chemiluminescence, glowing because of chemical reactions in the air. Also, the glow of a firefly at night, or certain mushrooms, is chemiluminescence, but not treated in this episode. In our next episode, the discipline of environmental chemistry begins to form, and we describe that scary yet powerful time. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.